Hi and welcome to the Journalism Salute. I'm Mark Simon. In each episode, we'll talk to or about an interesting person or organization related to journalism. The intent is to show that journalists are not the enemy of the people. Thank you for listening. It's a special edition of the Journalism Salute. I wanted to do something that connects to Black History Month and ties the past to the present. We did that with an interview with three college freshmen who previously were students at Kirkwood High School. Last year, under the direction of journalism teacher Mitch Eden, they did a series of articles that showed how what was going on in the suburb of St. Louis was related to the 1619 project that ran in the New York Times. The 1619 project in the news recently, Iowa's state legislature latest to bring up legislation that would ban integrating it into teaching and curriculums. Blunt honesty, I think that's ridiculous. This podcast has been slightly edited, more than a little, due to one of the interviewees, Keaton Eloise Smith, getting caught in the bad weather down south. Her interview was conducted separately and merged in with the others. Hopefully it sounds seamless. Thank you for listening. So we're joined by three Kirkwood High alums to talk about what they learned and what they did. Emma Lingo, Keaton Eloise Smith, and Maddie Myers Welcome to the Journalism Salute. Give us a brief introduction. Uh, Emma, we'll start with you. Hey, thanks for joining us. Hi, uh, I'm Emma. So I was editor-in-chief of the Kirkwood Call um, my senior year of high school, and now I go to the University of Missouri, Mizzou, where I'm a reporter for their student paper, and I also recently took up a position in student government. And we're also joined by Maddie Myers, also from that project. Maddie, hello. Hi, my name is Maddie, and I was also one of the editors-in-chief of the Kirkwood Call my senior year of high school at Kirkwood High School, and now I am a freshman at the University of Missouri, Mizzou, and I am studying journalism with an emphasis in strategic communication, and I'm hoping to do something with travel journalism in the future. And Keaton, can you introduce yourself? So I'm Keaton Smith. Um, I'm currently a freshman at Jackson State University in Mississippi. And the role that I took was I was one of the writers for the 1619 project, but for the call, um, I was a copy editor the year that we wrote it. So let's start by explaining how the Kirkwood Calls version of the 1619 project came about. Uh, Emma, can you start us off with that? So our wonderful advisor, Mr. Eden, is friends with Bill Freibogel who works for the Pulitzer Center. He's given presentations to our uh, journalism classes on and off. And Mr. Freibogel was looking for some students to actually write on the project. And obviously race is a huge deal in St. Louis, whether you're from the county or the city, especially because of the previous redlining that is throughout the St. Louis metropolitan area. There was even a city hall shooting in Kirkwood specifically um, over it. So. He reached out, came to our class, gave a presentation, and asked for volunteers. I ended up taking on the leadership position, and then we had uh, six other writers hop onto it. It ended up being published under the 1619 Project, but Mr. Freivogel called it the 1857 Project because that is the most important year, in his opinion, um, for race in St. Louis, which was when the Dred Scott court case was decided. How familiar were the three of you with the 1619 project itself. Did you read the articles or listen to any of the podcast? 
I honestly hadn't really heard much about it before Mr. Freivogel introduced us to it. But then after I heard about it, I knew it was something that I really wanted to get involved in since it's a very important issue. And um, it deals with a lot of things that have happened in our history, but that are also still very prevalent today. And so then after that, I did some more research, read more about it and realized I really wanted to get more involved. I'd heard of it, but I wasn't like too, too familiar about it. Like I usually just heard my mom talking about it, like in casual conversation. And what was your uh, reaction to the idea that you, your class would, uh, that your paper would do something with it? I was pretty excited. Like as soon as I heard about it, I was pretty quick to sign up for it because I just felt like it was very important, especially counting the history of Kirkwood, but you know, St. Louis City as, a, as in general, I felt like it was a very important thing to cover. Can you give us a sense of the demographic makeup, both of the school and the, and the city itself? I feel like that's an important piece of context that we need to include here. So I don't have the specific demographic percentages for each school, but I know they're available on our site and I did a lot of research with that since I looked at how all of the schools were divided racially when I was talking about redistricting. And I noticed that there were very small percentages of people who weren't white at each school and they were not all equal either. Some had larger percentages than others and some had very, very small percentages like six or lower. So definitely a big issue in our community of trying to make sure we are more racially diverse. Uh, Keaton, we'll start with your piece and, and we'll go from there and talk about the other two. Your piece was on the subject of how economics shape and separate the black community. Can you uh, articulate the message that you were trying to convey in that piece? Basically, I was just trying to talk about the economic separations in the black community because fortunately, well, I go to, I went to, you know, a predominantly white high school and that's the neighborhood that I'd always lived in. And I was talking about how, although like there's a lot of things that I faced within going to that school, I was still extremely privileged to be able to live in that type of neighborhood. And I was talking about, you know, how my parents, they have multiple degrees. Like I don't really have to worry about any economic issues and that gives me a step up above like some of my other black classmates who you know while I'm over here like asking my parents like oh can I have money to go to the mall or whatever they are they have jobs and you know they have bills to pay so I was just talking about that and that how it's very very different um, depending on the environment that you're in in that there tends to be like this mindset from both from like the black community and then like the white community as well especially in my neighborhood that like if you don't make as much money as we do, like you don't work hard enough and that type of thing. But there are genuine reasons why people are not able to reach the economic status that people like my family can or just like anybody else in general. And I tied that back to when slavery first started because obviously slavery is such a big thing and it's not really taught in history classes, I feel like to the extent of how bad it actually was and how the repercussions of slavery have gone beyond you know, the 1800s. And I think a lot of people just want to cut it off and say, oh, well, slavery is over with, but all of the effects from slavery are still there, um, both mental, but, you know, just like in general. And I feel like that's like the root of the issues of why so many people are not able to get economically, you know, far ahead. And then also in there, I mentioned the GI Bill because at the same time that I wrote this article, I was in this history class. We, have a, we had a history class and it was called 
I can't think of the name it is now, but it used to be called Africa to America. I think it's called the Black Experience in America class. So I took that class and I mean, I kind of knew most of what we were already talking about, but something we constantly brought up was the GI Bill because the GI Bill were, was not given to African-Americans. So whereas, you know, lower class white Americans were able to move up to middle class or even higher, Black Americans were pretty much staying in the same tax bracket that they were before. So because of that, you know, we weren't really able to build that generational wealth that other races are able to build. So the, like their grandparents or their, you know, their grandkids will be taking care of that type of thing. But because we were not granted that type of thing, like we're not able to build wealth in the same way, which is why a lot of people are still kind of like stuck in the same place, struggling. And I also talk about how like kids like, you know, Black kids like me that are a little bit more well off pretty much have won the lottery. Like we kind of just got lucky that this happened, you know, cause I know my father, he grew up in like extreme poverty and I just, you know, he just happened to, you know, be able to get an education and work his way up, but not everyone is like afforded that privilege. I'm curious about the process of writing the piece uh, and what goes into writing an op-ed kind of piece for you. There was, there was some impressive uh, use of phrase, not all skin folks are kin folks. Uh, being one of them. Um, I'm curious what goes into the writing of a piece like this. Well, when it comes to a piece like this, to me, it it's fairly easy only because like, this is really my experience. So there, there isn't much like research that really needs to go into it. I mean, maybe, you know, just to pull out numbers and facts like that. But because this is my personal experience, it's much easier to just like, write it all out. And I feel like whenever I'm writing a story like this, it's almost like, I'm ranting or saying everything that I couldn't really say out loud because, you know, there's an audience that might understand me better than the audience of my peers. Emma, uh, there were a couple of pieces about education. Uh, Maddie started to talk about hers. Uh, you wrote about Northside Community School and went through the history of why it exists and that relates to redlining. Uh, what was the message that you were trying to get across in uh, doing the piece? So Northside Community School is sort of known as one of the best charter schools. I believe at the time that it was written, it was actually the best charter school in Missouri. And it was definitely the best charter school in St. Louis. It was sort of a success story and one of a happier story, I believe, to include. Because the message I was trying to get across is that Black kids are successful. Like, they aren't all struggling and impoverished. There are happy, successful stories that come out of it. But even though it's the best charter school, it's still like way behind the rest of the pack just because of that geographic like racism that is like literally drawn into St. Louis as it's one of the northernmost schools in the city and it is actually right in the center of where like the most uh, violent crimes take place in America but it's actually like a place where that many kids go and get the best education that's available to them. So I thought it was super interesting. What was the process that went into writing it? I went to the school and I spoke with staff and students and it was super sweet because I got to hang out while they were actually, um, they provide lunch and presents uh, to the kids for like holidays since a lot of the families, most of the kids that go there fall below the federal poverty line. Um, which is also super impressive that they still maintain that high of grades. So it was super fun. I got to hang out with the kids, give them some presents, interview the staff, and then the teachers were all super realistic about the kids' situations. They were all super proud of them, but all of them made sure to mention that despite the fact that they are the smartest um, 
school on paper, they still are incredibly disadvantaged and suffer greatly just from the redlining that is still put into districts today. How much did you know about redlining before you started compared to, I guess, after the fact? I actually knew quite a bit because I had done a previous project on redlining. The red line that runs, the big red line that runs through St. Louis, or previously ran through St. Louis, is called Del Mar Boulevard. And if you go to Del Mar Boulevard, you can literally stand in the middle of the street and look to the north and south and tell which side people were sort of shunned to. Um, North of Del Mar Boulevard is where people of color, Jewish people, immigrants, um, so forth, were required to live because they simply wouldn't sell housing to them in the other part of the St. Louis metropolitan area. And the nicer part that now very obviously has generational wealth going for it is to the south of the red line. So I kind of had that knowledge going into it. And I knew that if I went north of that red line, I could probably find a story there. Maddie, you looked at the redistricting process as you started to talk about for schools in the area. You traced it back to 1954, someone talking to someone who was impacted by Brown versus Board of Education. Explain to us your story and what you learned from doing it. Yes. So basically, I was looking at Kirkwood's new redistricting process that is supposed to go in place in about 2022, 2023. And I wanted to see kind of what, what, what they were considering when they were doing their new redistricting. So I looked way back and the last time they had redistricted was 1975. And so then I looked back even further to 1954 when the case Brown v. Board of Education passed. And then I found William F. Hall, who was the first African-American student to go to one of Kirkwood's predominantly white schools. He was the first student to go. And so it was really, really interesting to talk to him and kind of see his take on everything. And he was just such a kind person who really was hopeful for the future. And he said that, yes, like things need to be taken into consideration and race needs to be taken into consideration, but there are many factors like that's not the only important one. And I felt like when I had to go to a new school, people, it it wasn't a bad experience for me. He really like kind of humbled going through it, if that makes sense. Like he said that I'm fortunate that I was always raised to believe all human beings are made in the image of God. There was never any hatred or feeling that I was better than someone or certainly that I was less than anyone. So he showed that when he went to a new school, he always had a vision that he was wanted and that he could do something with this. And so it was really empowering to talk to him and learn his story and really make those connections. And that's what I took away mostly from that story. But it was also just interesting to see kind of like what Kirkwood is going to do in the future and compare that with what they had done in the past as well. I want to acknowledge the other pieces briefly. Charlotte Heinrich profiled a mixed race student at Kirkwood High School. Rachel Finan wrote about the impact of red lighting on things like life expectancy. Malcia Green wrote about how it's hypocritical for Missouri to call itself the show me state. The grand project, six articles, you can click on them. You go to the uh, the website, which we will have in the show notes. What was the, the grand kind of takeaway from doing the, the whole thing? I think my biggest takeaway is the amount of dedication people have to telling a story and talking about you know, the racial divide within our uh, city, because there's a lot of like, I don't know, like, it was very unexpected, the responses that we got from it, and how hard a lot of people worked, and you know, how hard people were researching, and just trying to get everything together, because 
when we're talking about like these type of issues because I was the only black staffer who worked on it and I was one of the few black staffers in general a lot of the people writing about these stories really haven't experienced what they're writing about but they were still able to get the story across in a good way. The big takeaway uh, for us, I think, was just that obviously, not only are we like a predominantly white school, we're a predominantly white staff. So I believe I literally can only think of two to four black students and that changed based on the year, but we were a staff about 90 and there were only about two to four black students that we had writing on staff. So I think a big takeaway from that too was just that like, we need to take into account that like, the amount of people of color that we had on staff wasn't exactly representative of what we had in school, what the country was like, anything like that. And also obviously leading into sort of 2020 and everything that happened with Black Lives Matter. I know that this year, the new staff has taken on a lot more race issues, which I think we think is super important because obviously St. Louis is one of the most racially charged cities in like America, I would argue, especially with the East St. Louis race riots, redlining, everything that's going on today, and of course the city hall shooting that happened in our town like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would say another big takeaway too was just kind of the connections we made with the people we talked to. It was really interesting, you know, we are both white girls, so it was interesting to hear other people's perspective going through this and seeing what we could do to be better, and I think it was just really inspiring to kind of be a part of that and help write for this project since it is such an important thing. When you hear about politicians that are speaking out against the 1619 project, uh, what's your reaction? It's very, very ignorant. You know, I feel like when it comes to America, um, we tend to have a habit of trying to hide our history um, and try to just make it seem like, oh, we're this perfect country. Like we don't really have these type of issues going on, but that's just gonna be, that's just gonna create more and more issues. As we can see at the, at the, the political climate that we're at right now, I mean, this is nothing new. Like we've been repeating, repeating and repeating. And it's simply because like we're hiding so much history or trying to censor so much history. So I feel like it should be a different approach of like, let's learn about it and let's learn about why I was wrong and things like that. Because I mean, I feel like there's no reason why other countries should know our history better than we do. And that so many countries who have done these type of wrongs are able to look back and be like, oh, this was wrong, but we have yet to do that. I personally think it's very frustrating. Um, a lot of people are saying it's part of some like liberal agenda or it's like delegitimizing America's founding and like what the founding fathers did, where really it's just trying to bring the truth to light. Um, it's showing it's trying to show like the current problems that stem from slavery and racial injustice. And it's not trying to change history in any way, but it's just trying to shine light on it and rewrite it in a way that is more accurate and shows what truly happened so we can learn about our history and then try and change and make it better for the future. I mean, I'm going to agree with Maddie here. I the amount of people that have criticized it just being berating. Uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones um, is very frustrating because obviously we learn a very watered down version of history in class and of course there's no federal mandate for history so it also changes depending on where you live and I think the 1619 project was a great step in the right direction to sort of lift that veil and show kids that hey maybe you're not learning everything in school that you should be and i think that's super important however there are there's one critique that i have seen that i think is sort of a valid critique and that is 
that rewriting 1619 as the start of American history can be invalidating to indigenous populations. And that is more of a leftist critique, which I think that is a more valid critique than a lot of the ones that I have heard. And personally, I think uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones even acknowledged it. So I think that just any critiques from politicians currently, especially banning it, is way too far. Indeed. All right. So to close here, I want to give a shout out. We always do a salute at the end of the episode. And I want to give, I want to specify this one because I think it's only fair. I want to give a shout out to uh, Mr. Eden. Uh, Just uh, tell us about him. Tell us about the journalism program uh, at Kirkwood High School, which is very impressive. Um, So Mr. Eden, I've actually known him pretty much my whole life. Um, My mom also works at Kirkwood High School, so they're pretty good friends. And so he's known me since I was a baby, but it's, it's been great to just work with him. And honestly, being an editor in chief, I got to work really, really closely with him. And I would text him at the most random hours, like 5am to like 1am, like all the time, probably annoyed him a lot, but he would always make sure to respond and be there for us and really support us. And it was just a great environment to be in. Honestly, like being part of the Kirkwood call was one of the best experiences of my high school career. And honestly, like it probably will be one of the best experiences of my life just because I met so many people and I learned so much from it. And that's due to Mr. Eden. He really helped me grow in my confidence and find my skills and passion of what I want to do. So I really want to thank him for helping me find who I am. Yeah, nothing but good things to say about Mr. Eden. He was easily hands down my favorite teacher that I ever had. He gave me more connections than anyone, helped me set up for my career. It felt like he was part teacher, part like guidance, like counselor. He actually gave Maddie and I a paying job that we've had for the last year, like set us up for success in ways that no other high school teacher set us up for success. He is still there for us if we need him. I literally texted him like a week ago and he was like, what's up? How's college going? And he's just a great person and a super great journalist. He's part of the reason I want to do what I'm doing. Well, I definitely miss it. Um, I feel like it really gave me my voice because I know my first like year of high school was super rough because I like went through this whole like big racial incident at school and I feel like I just couldn't you know breathe or like feel safe going to my school anymore but um when I joined the call like it was probably the best thing to happen to me my friend or like my uh high school because like I just feel like Eden gave me an opportunity to like share my voice and not be censored or anything like that which you know, a lot of high schools don't have the opportunity where we can just like say whatever we want. Obviously, you know, factually based, but, you know, we can write about pretty much whatever we want and he'll support us no matter what. So that's something I'm very thankful for. And then, you know, I'm very thankful of how he taught us about journalistic integrity and things of that nature, because that's not something you typically see. And it's crazy that us high schoolers knew way more about it than like a lot of adults. So I feel like it really prepared me to be able to go like to my future career field or just like, you know, go through life in general, because the lessons that we learned in that class, like just they go beyond just like writing and things like that, you know? Excellent. Maddie, you mentioned before that you wanted to be a travel journalist. 
Uh, Emma, what's your career aspiration? I know that people debate whether or not this is a real field, but I would like to go into advocacy journalism. That's a future subject, uh, hopefully, on this podcast. Uh, very good topic. A uh, very interesting area, certainly, to go into. And Keaton, what about you? I really want to be, like, the editor-in-chief of, like, Vogue, Teen Vogue, like, one of those type of magazines. I actually finished a project with Teen Vogue, like, a little bit ago. It was, like, their political project, so... I got a little bit experience. <laughs> All right, as we wrap up uh, things here, Keaton, we'll give you the last word. I would say that I feel like, especially living in the town that I lived in, that this project was especially important to do because as I reiterated, or as I'm reiterating, my city or the, the neighborhood that I lived in of Kirkwood is the prime example of what I was talking about, how you have you know, everyone in Kirkwood, not everyone, but a majority of people in Kirkwood are pretty wealthy. You know, it's a very expensive neighborhood to live in. And we don't, my family doesn't live there anymore. We live in Connecticut. So, but it's a very expensive neighborhood to live in. So only really a certain amount of people are able to live in that neighborhood. And you tend to see like a huge economic disparity within the school. And it's even just the little things of like, who's wearing Lululemon, who has an iPhone, like who has a pair of the nicest shoes, like things like that, and you see it everywhere, and then it gets even more complicated when you see it amongst Black students of the Black students that have stuff and the Black students that don't have stuff. So I feel like my story was really just a prime example of the things that kind of go on in Kirkwood. I mean, everyone knows about it, everyone sees it. I mean, it even happens with, like, education, you know, we, at the, the Black students at my school, we constantly had to, like, compete against one another in order to be, like, the best of the best because, you know, we tended to be seen as just one, like we were just one black student body, like we were all the same. Um, so we were constantly having to work harder and harder and harder than, you know, our white peers just to prove like, oh, we belong here, like we have a place here. So yeah, I feel like this story really pertains to that, to my city. Um, something else that I can think of when I'm talking about education is, you know, my sister, she's, my sister's brilliant. Like she's very, very smart. And she's like the top 3% of her class. But when we were trying to find out like where she was placed, the people were like at the school were like, we had to check twice because we didn't actually believe she was the top 3%. So you're constantly having to compete and compete against your white peers, but then you have to also compete against your black peers just to prove like that you're good enough to be at that school. Emma, Maddie, and Keaton, thank you for the chance to talk. Best of luck in your future. Thank you so much. Thank you. We've really enjoyed being here and talking with you today. We'll be back with more in just a moment. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. Find the Journalism History Podcast at journalism-history.org slash podcast and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. I'm introducing a new segment to the show. I'm calling it Taking Notes. We've got Emmy Liederman, who is interning on the show, and she took diligent notes in listening to the conversation we just had. Emmy, let's start with this. What were your impressions of both what they had to say and how the 1619 Project is not just a historical record, but also useful for teaching scholastic journalists? I think that the 1619 project was incredibly innovative in the way that it recognized 
the fact that there were gaps in history and gaps in a lot of educa um, in American education that is unique to our country that you may not see in other countries when they're talking about their history. And I think that it, you know, the podcast format, the use of um, imagery and in the script, as well as just um, sound effects, everything about it really came together and it was the right medium and also just, you know, the right storytelling ability and the right journalist. Um, and I think that the students who worked on this project were able to understand that how effective um, this storytelling was and, and, you know, how widespread, how much widespread recognition it received um, and their ability to kind of mimic it and, and make it their own and apply it to a lo more localized issue, I think is really impressive and you know, something that's comparable to what was done at the, at the New York Times with the 1619 Project. Um, so it really, I think it goes to show with the right mentor, with a program that really um, encourages students to take risks with journalism and talk about the issues that actually matter in their communities. Um, this can be something that can be implemented in, in more school districts. And one other thing, uh, your impressions of uh, Emma, Maddie, and Keaton. I was very impressed with all three of them, how well-spoken they were, um, how passionate they were about this project to the point where it was hard to believe that they had just started college and, you know, haven't gotten that level of journalism education. They seem to really understand um, what makes a good reporter, the types of questions that need to be asked. They, by recognizing um, their own biases, I think that they were able to fully understand why this was a project that, that required collaboration and could only be effective if they all worked as a team. We'll be hearing much more from Emmy in the next few weeks. I want to mention one other thing before we wrap up. With Black History Month ending, there's a great resource online if you'd like to learn more. In the show notes, there's a link to a visual piece done by Vince Dixon, now of the Boston Globe, spotlighting 28 important black people in digital journalism history. Among them, W.E.B. Du Bois and his hand-drawn data visualizations that debunked claims of black inferiority, and the Pullman porters who hid stacks of the Chicago Defender on their trains and then tossed them off the train at designated points to southern locals who distributed them. It's highly educational and highly recommended. Vince wasn't able to join us this month, but I wanted to make sure that this got noted. This seemed like the right episode to do it. The Journalism Salute is dedicated to the memory of Dr. Robert Cole, who ran the journalism program at Trenton State College, the College of New Jersey, for more than 30 years. A lot of what the students at Kirkwood said about their teacher could be applied to Dr. Cole. We'll have more memories to share on him in the coming weeks. Thank you for listening to the Journalism Salute. Please let us know what you think of the show. You can find us on Twitter at JournalismPod, and you can email us at journalismsalute at gmail.com.